Competition is a perennial concern for any business, and learning businesses need to take the time and energy to evaluate and then reevaluate periodically the competitive landscape in which they operate so that they can survive and thrive. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 353 of the Leading Learning Podcast, which we're going to focus on competition. Competition is a really significant issue for most learning businesses, and the competitive landscape for lifelong learning, continuing education, and professional development is evolving and changing. And so we think that talking about competition warrants a little airtime here on the podcast. Definitely. I mean, we've talked about competition before, but, you know, the makeup of the lifelong learning landscape and the drivers of lifelong learning are, as you said, evolving, which means the competitive landscape is also evolving. And that changing nature, plus the importance of competition in determining whether a learning business survives and hopefully thrives, means this is a topic that warrants some discussion and thought on an ongoing basis. Now, there are many ways to think about competition. And in the past, we've drawn on blue ocean strategy. And blue ocean strategy, if we boil it down, what it's really trying to do is make the competition irrelevant. So the idea is that you're going to do things differently enough that you essentially have no competitors. And so rather than being part of a bloody red ocean where there's lots of competition, you're going to place yourself in a wide open blue ocean. We'll be sure to link in the show notes to this episode for to some resources on blue ocean strategy if you want a refresher on what that is or if you just need an initial overview. And we really do love and frequently use some of those blue ocean tools, the strategy canvas in particular for really helping to identify the competitive factors in your market and how to stand out on those competitive factors and establish new and different competitive factors that others just really aren't focused on. We think that's very powerful and you'll see some discussion of that in what we link to, links to to how to access those kinds of tools. But for today's conversation, we're going to go to a classic, I mean, Blue Ocean Strategy is really a classic at this point. Kim and Momorn published their original book in 2004. So, you know, it's almost two decades old at this point. And they have a new book coming out later in 2023. I saw an announcement just maybe last week, and that book's going to be called Beyond Disruption. So I look forward to reading that. Maybe that's the topic of a future podcast episode. Definitely. I'll probably be on the the, the pre-sale list for that. You can uh, call me a fanboy for Kim and Melbourne's work. But Today, we're going to send our conversation on, I guess, a more classic, or at least an older one, and this is going to be around Michael Porter's five forces, and Porter first described those forces in a 1979 Harvard Business Review article that really became the foundation of his competitive strategy, which was just one of the monumental works on strategy out there in, in the business world. So as the name of the model suggests, there are five forces um, driving competition that Michael Porter looks at. And so I'll just give you an overview of those five forces, and then we'll talk about each of those a little bit more. So number one, threat of new entrants. Number two, bargaining power of suppliers. Number three, bargaining power of buyers. 
number four, the threat of substitute products and services, and then number five, finally, rivalry among existing competitors. And so let's look at that first one, the threat of new entrants. And this is other learning businesses entering into your market, going after your customers, which certainly we've seen plenty of happen over the past several years. And I think it's good exercise as a thought experiment to to step back and say, if I wanted to, could I go out and start my own education business today? And this is independent of whatever your current organization, whatever your current learning business is. How would you go about doing that? And if you were to go out on your own and start a learning business today, what exactly would you do? Because somewhere is thinking about that right now. And so, as you said, Jeff, this is a, a good, interesting thought experiment. So we actually encourage you to pause the podcast now, take a moment to reflect and really think about this. If you wanted to start a learning business that would essentially be a competitor to what you're already doing now, how would you go about doing that? And our guess is that once you've given it a little bit of thought, you'll realize it's actually not all that hard Mm-mm. to enter your market. I mean, you license, you buy an articulate license, you maybe hire a, a freelancer on Fiverr or some other platform, you get a Zoom license, maybe a low cost or even free learning platform. And it's pretty easy to stand up a product and offering, maybe even a couple products or offerings in pretty limited time. Yeah, it's just easier than ever for new entrants to get into the education business, largely because of technology changes and just the higher accessibility, ease of use, lower pricing. So that threat of new entrants is pretty high and it's quite real. I think most organizations have been feeling that in in one way or another. And it can be easy to be dismissive and be like, sure, it's one thing to kind of put together a course and articulate, but, you know, is it going to actually get any traction? Who's going to come to it? Is it going to be any good? Is it going to be any good? It's the whole kind of, if we build it, will they come type discussion. And so it's very easy to sort of ascribe all those attributes to these new entrants and just think, you know, they're not going to have the quality. They don't, they're not going to have the reputation. They're not going to have the expertise that we have. And so it's pretty easy to just kind of ignore them. But we encourage you not to write off the new entrants. Yeah, I mean, you need to be very clear about your sources of competitive advantage and what you're going to need to do to hang on to them and potentially add to them. I'll reference again that strategy canvas that you see in uh, work like Blue Ocean Strategy. What factors are you competing on and can you really compete on them well if you compare yourself to others in the marketplace? And are there competitive factors that you can discover and start putting into place that are going to stand you out more. Even if you never get to a blue ocean, you still have to differentiate. That was sort of at the core of Michael Porter's work as well. And so one key source of protection that a learning business has against the threat of new entrants is brand and it's loyalty. It's the loyalty that your brand either already inspires in learners or that it might inspire in prospective learners. Yeah, and this is, I think, so important and so often undervalued by learning businesses these days, particularly ones that may operate within the context of a larger organization like an association or university. They're just sort of taking the sheen of that brand and they may not have a strong brand around the learning business itself. That's so important. And, but, you know, it's also important that the sense of affiliation, really kind of belonging, uh, that your prospective customers 
have for whatever organization you're associated with. So if you are an association, for example, how strongly do members feel affiliated with you as an association? Yeah, there was a report that ASAE published back in 2010 called The Decision to Learn, and the authors just made the point that sense of affiliation is a really important factor for learners when they're evaluating offerings from associations versus those from other providers. And so, you know, if the learner's association is offering a product, you know, if they have that sense of affiliation with that association, they're going to tend to go with that offering versus from some other competitor where they don't necessarily have that same level of affiliation with it. Yeah. And of course, this applies beyond associations. It just makes a lot of sense if you really identify with an organization. If you feel that sense of affiliation, particularly if you feel a deep sense of loyalty, you're much more likely to do something with that organization and with that learning business. You can see this in the academic market too, for example. I mean, universities and colleges, are often able to capitalize on their brands, whether it's a, a regional brand or a national or an international brand. And of course, those organizations have alumni networks. They essentially have a sort of membership so that uh, the affiliation as a member kind of plays in there as well. And even beyond associations, even beyond the academic market, that sense of affiliation, that sense of belonging can still work to the advantage of other types of learning businesses. I mean, for us, that's a big part of the power of community. And we recently had an episode where we talked about how and why to build a learning community. And part of it is because that does make you much more competitive because that sense of affiliation, that sense of belonging that people have with you through that community then means it's much harder to, to turn somewhere else to get a learning product or service. Yeah. And, you know, really fundamentally, so much of this comes down to relationships. You know, so it's the sense of affiliation or loyalty that the uh, prospective learners may have with you, but it's also your relationships with your subject matter experts. We're going to get to that in a minute. It's your relationships with the employers in your marketplace. So as an action item here, when you're thinking about the threat of new entrants, I mean, first of all, you need to be aware of whether they are there or not, or what opportunities might be for them to come in and make sure you're tuning into that, but also to, to back up and think about all right, what are our competitive factors? What are we competing on? Are those the best things to be competing on? Are there other factors that we could bring into play? And then let's check our relationships, whether you're doing a net promoter score or some other way of going out and just finding out, do we have the relationship with our prospective learners? Do we have strong relationships with our subject matter experts? Do we have strong relationships with the employers in our marketplace? We're grateful to Thinkific for sponsoring the Leading Learning Podcast. As a Leading Learning listener, you know the importance we place on reach, revenue, and impact for learning businesses. Thinkific Plus is a new generation platform purpose-built to help growing businesses scale revenue. With Thinkific Plus, you can generate monthly recurring revenue through course subscriptions and membership programs, sell multiple seats for your learning products to a single buyer, suggest additional products in the learning flow to increase sales, and go global with 0% transaction fees and payments accepted in over 100 countries. As one quick example, entrepreneur and business coach Ellie Diop uses Thinkific Plus for her Ellie Talks Money Academy. She's generated over seven figures in revenue and nearly 50,000 people purchased courses in her first year alone. 
Right now, Thinkific Plus is offering leading learning listeners one month free for a limited time. But that offer is only available if you go to our special URL. So go to thinkific.com slash learning to learn more and try out the platform. That's thinkific.com slash learning. So let's move from the threat of new entrants, the first of the five forces we're going to talk about, to the next, which is bargaining power of suppliers. And so to even think about this, you, of course, have to first identify who are the suppliers that you deal with. Yeah, and you're dealing in intellectual property, basically. So it may be kind of strange to think about the fact that you have suppliers, but most learning businesses are reliant upon subject matter experts as suppliers of of the knowledge and the skills and the expertise that they then need to be able to share with their audience. And so as we were just talking about with that threat of new entrants, you know, technology has made it very easy for a subject matter expert to offer a webinar on her own or connect directly with learners through LinkedIn or other social media. And so stop that SME from entering into competition with you and becoming that new entrant that you have to worry about that first of the five forces that we talked about. Or going to work for one of those new entrants. I mean, there's just, there are a lot more opportunities for those subject matter experts now as suppliers in this whole learning and education industry that we work in. So that does increase their bargaining power. When you go to them and say, we want you to create a learning experience for us, they're going to be saying, okay, is this where I should do this learning experience? Or should I do this myself and put it out in the marketplace? Or what about this great new commercial company over here that's actually going to pay me a lot more money to do this and give me potentially more prestige or whatever? So those types of things are now going through a subject matter expert's mind that 10 years, 20 years ago, just really weren't big factors. And so this means that you need to put yourself in your SME's shoes. You really need to think through those kinds of choices that they're being faced with. And we think this is a pretty strong argument for investing in your subject matter experts. So make sure that you're offering them something valuable. What can you provide them that they might not be able to do on their own or they might not be able to do with that other learning provider? It could be something like getting them access to audiences that they'd have difficulty tapping into otherwise. It could be helping them be better at presenting their expertise. So you have those subject matter experts. They know their stuff, whatever their domain, their field is. But often they don't necessarily know how best to convey that expertise to learners and help others actually pick up that skill and knowledge that they already have. Yeah. And, you know, particularly if you're, say, a, a trader professional association or somebody who's bringing in people who are young, starting in the, their career as an expert, investing in them early, helping them to become really good at it. That that helps to breed that loyalty that we were talking about earlier, that, that sense of affiliation. And uh, a lot of times it, it makes sense to, to really shine a spotlight on your subject matter experts. And that's particularly true if you happen to be an organization that has access to some of the best in whatever field or industry you're in. And certainly that can be true if you're an academic institution or if you're a, a leading association in your market or some commercial providers have the cachet. You, you think of somebody like a Google now who's really in the lifelong learning business at this point, offering credentials and such. They can attract top-notch subject matter experts and uh, you know, shining a light on those people helps to stand you out competitively uh, in that you know, threat of new entrants area that we just talked about. It also builds 
the relationship with that subject matter expert. And you might say, you know, hey, isn't that a little bit dangerous to put too much emphasis on this subject matter expert that I might lose that might decide to go out on her own or might decide to work for another learning provider? But I think our take on it is, you know, they already could do that. So this is, you know, about showing, again, that you have a good relationship, goes back to the relationships that you were emphasizing earlier, Jeff. And so you want to help spotlight them and their expertise, and then that's hopefully going to make them loyal to you and want them to work and present their content through your learning business. And I'll say this is, I might get a little bit on a soapbox now, a little, but it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, often dealing with organizations as a subject matter expert when they're getting you to do a webinar or present at their conference or something like that. The language, the tone that organizations often use in dealing with subject matter experts is, I mean, frankly, condescending at times. It's not sort of a level of professional peers working together. And that, that's just some organizations. I don't want to paint too broadly with that brush but it's out there, definitely make sure that you're not doing that and working with your subject matter experts. And so in terms of what you can do in this area, one thing, if you agree with us and you want to help invest in your subject matter experts, if you want to help make them better at presenting their expertise, we can recommend Presenting for Impact. This is a free online course that we have made available. We'll include a link to it in the show notes. So it's something that you can vet, take a look at yourself, and then think about how you might use it with your subject matter experts to help show them how to do their work better and that you're valuing the work that they are doing for you and that you're willing to invest some time and resources in helping them do that even better. And again, another soapbox to get up on, you know, we, we really feel like investing in subject matter experts makes just so much sense because it's one of the ways that a learning business can really help make sure that the learning it's offering, those conference sessions, those webinars, whatever it might be, that those are actually impactful, meaningful learning experiences. And that helps therefore, of course, increase the impact that your learning business has. So we've talked about the threat of new entrants and the bargaining power of suppliers. Let's turn now to the third in our list, bargaining power of buyers. And by buyers, we're talking about really anybody who has that sort of economic decision-making authority around enrolling in, participating in, registering for your learning experiences. And that may be your learners, but in many cases, it's also or only going to be their employers. Right. So think about who it is who's actually providing the dollars that it costs to invest in your learning experience and also the time. So again, this is where sometimes even if the learners are paying out of their own pocket, you know, maybe the employers are giving them time away from work to pursue that. So really thinking about, okay, who are these people who are buying and what is it that they value? And of course, these buyers have more options than ever before. And so that gives them a lot of power to, to really drive a hard bargain in terms of what it is they expect from you, what it is they want from you. Yeah, so I think it's more important than ever to, to make sure that you really do understand your buyers, who's making that decision and kind of what are their characteristics, what matters to them, what do they actually value? Because they do have all of those options. So, you know, spending the time to 
ideally segment your market, determine which parts of your audience are, are really the most important to what you're trying to achieve as a learning business. Who are your best buyers? And that may be really homing in on specific industries or specific subsets of whatever industry you're serving on specific sets of employers. But you really want to make sure that you're getting at those buyers that are going to be or you're going to produce the best results for your learning business and whom you can produce the best results for and focus on connecting with them. And so a key here is to really make sure that you understand what employers in your field or industry need so that whatever education and learning offerings you put out there really do translate to someone being able to gain employment or maintain employment and to do a good and important job and that they have the skills and the knowledge that they need. So making sure that you're including employers and other industry representatives when you're thinking about, okay, what is it that we offer? And that can mean in terms of actual content, it can also then come down to the level of credentials. And so what is it that you're going to provide a credential for and what do those credentials need to look like? We've talked recently about this idea of workable credentials. Yeah. And I think what this comes down to, we're talking about the bargaining power of buyers. You want to get yourself in a position where they're not even inclined to bargain. Like the value that you are offering is so clear. So it's kind of a a no-brainer. Yes, we're going to go with this as an employer, or I'm going to go with this uh, as an individual learner. So, you know, if those credentials are actually meaningful, they, they have some recognized value to them. They truly demonstrate that you've acquired the skills or knowledge that that you need. That's going to help reduce any desire for bargaining. It's going to make you the clearer choice. Doing things like creating pathways, clarifying what's needed and making the discovery of appropriate learning experiences along a career trajectory or an onboarding for a job or, or whatever it is, but really defining the way, showing learners the way, showing employers the way, making it easy and making it valuable. And if you really home in on that, then yes, they've got more choices than ever before. But the more you become the clear choice, the less bargaining there is. And we're talking about the evolving competitive landscape. We're talking about how there's so much more competition today than ever before. And therefore, buyers have more choices, but that does create a lot of noise. And so this point that you're just raising, Jeff, around how can you stand out? How can you become that signal that emerges from the noise? If you can be that clear path, if you can show them exactly what they need and why it's valuable and why they should do it with you, then that really sets you up to succeed as a learning business. So actions to take in this area, first of all, be clear on who your buyers really are, who's making that economic decision, and who has major influence in it, and what matters to those people, what, you know, what's driving those decisions. And then figure out how you make yourself the clearest, the easiest choice, the, the no-brainer that's going to make it unnecessary to bargain. It sounds easy, but it's hard work to do that. And stepping back and starting that process of thinking about buyers and thinking about that path of purchase from a buyer knowing about you to them actually being a customer. How are you paving that path to make it as easy as possible? The fourth of the five forces that we want to talk about is the threat of substitute products or services. And this is basically how easy is it for someone else to create and offer the same kind of product or service that you offer? 
Yeah. And, you know, we saw a lot of this going on during COVID. COVID added a bunch of new competitors for most learning businesses because too many learning businesses really hadn't been online before. Um, And so suddenly everything's online and online, of course, isn't limited by geography and self-paced on demand isn't even limited by time zone. So the opportunity opens up for those substitute products and services that new entrants can offer, but also your existing competition can offer in your marketplace. And when thinking about substitute products and services, don't just think about content and topics, but also think about formats and other options that you're giving learners. So this might be where things like alternative credentials come in. So rather than a longer certification, perhaps breaking something down into stackable credentials, because that could help sort of stand you out and look different from another product or service. This might also be a place where micro learning could come into play. Again, you know, the idea of like a a larger certification, if you have a larger learning program, maybe by breaking it down into the micro learning, that's a, a way where you might have a little bit less of a threat of substitute products and services if the format or the options that you're giving learners are a little bit different than what others are doing. Yeah, I think the key here is you just don't, you don't want it to be easy for anybody to substitute for whatever it is you're offering. I mean, there, there are always going to be alternatives. People can always go down some other path. But if they really want the value that, that you're offering, they can really only get it from you. That's what you're aiming for. And so looking at things like giving flexibility and format, looking at things like building those intangible, I'd say kind of human-centered elements into your learning experiences like the community around it or you know your ability to run cohort-based learning that just nobody else can match. You're going to want to be looking for those kinds of opportunities that are much harder for somebody to offer a true substitute for. I think too that informal learning can be a bigger threat than some learning businesses realize you tend to maybe look at, okay, well, who else is offering a course in this subject or who else is offering conference or a seminar? But we all know that people turn to YouTube or they'll ask a question of their peers on LinkedIn. And those are ways that people can readily get to the content they need. They can get it quickly. They can get it in a targeted manner. And so Don't forget to think about those as potential substitutes to what you're offering. Even if what you're offering is our formal courses, there may be these informal offerings that are also a threat to your market. Yeah. You know, a lot of what we've been talking about before is looking at sort of who else is in your business, who you're kind of working with in your business in terms of your customers and and your suppliers. This is really kind of about the products themselves. So in, in terms of an action here, really stepping back and saying, okay, let's look at our products and the extent to which they, they really do deliver some sort of experience that if it's not completely unique, it's as distinctive and as hard to replicate as possible. So can we leverage some of those informal elements? Can we leverage community? Can we do things with our content to make it available in, in, in different ways? But in, in general, really assessing your portfolio and saying, okay, what has the threat of substitution in our portfolio and how do we fix that? So the last of the five forces that we want to discuss is rivalry among existing competitors. And 
We'll say right up front that in some markets, and I'm thinking of the markets for continuing professional education, continuing medical education, continuing legal education, for example, those markets are incredibly competitive and the result is usually a really strong downward price pressure. Yeah, you know, so you you really have to be aware of whoever your historical competitors have been before those new entrants showed up and how are they adapting? How are they changing? How are they shifting? And again, how can you position yourself differently from them? And it, and it goes back to everything we've already been talking about, you know, your relationship with your customers, your relationship with your suppliers, the nature of your products, how you are or are not reacting to those new entrants into the marketplace. All of those factor in here. If you're in a marketplace where you've traditionally had organization X and organization Y competing with you, how are they responding to all of those things? And how are you responding differently in, in a way that's really going to continue to stand you out? Because everybody's feeling the competition now. You know, new entrants coming in usually know they're entering into, well, they see an opportunity. Um, so they feel like they can compete in the market space. Your existing competitors are seeing those new entrants and the changing dynamics. They are going to be responding or they're probably going to be going out of business at some point if they're not. So to the extent that they are responding, you need to be tuned into that. And I think this is a place, again, where to really make sure that you have as uh, wide-eyed a view as possible of, of who your current competitors really are. And learning businesses are comprised of different types of organizations. I mean, we have associations, we have continuing education you know, units housed within academic institutions, we have training companies. And so really making sure that you're kind of broadly looking across this all these organizations that are serving this third sector of education, you know, that are helping adults after they've completed their formal education to continue to learn and really looking across that broad range of organizations and making sure that you really are aware of everyone that you're competing and that your learners are considering as options instead of you. Yeah. And we've seen again and again that Organizations often aren't aware of the, of the new entrants um, or who's actually getting traction as a new entrant. But when you look at it, they're often not fully aware of who their existing competitors are as well. So you really have to spend the time to do a good competitive landscape survey and figure out who really matters in your market. So that's been a quick tour of the five forces that Michael Porter brought to our attention way back in 1979. The takeaway, though, whether you use Michael Porter's five forces or something else, is that you really need to understand the competitive landscape in which your learning business operates. And as with so much in the world of learning, this is not a one and done. You and your team need to periodically reassess, reevaluate your competitors, update your understanding of who and what you're competing on and on what factors you're competing yeah, you know, and, and Porter's five forces obviously can be used to assess your market and assess potential markets, um, you know, that you might go after with your learning business. But you need to ideally do this on an ongoing basis to develop a sort of cadence, a rhythm for this, for going back out and looking at who's competing and what the opportunities are. And we look at tracking and assessing competition regularly as as one part of just really staying in tune with your market. You know, we've talked about this many times before. It's an ongoing 
process. We've actually defined a framework using the market insight matrix to give you a structure for doing this on an ongoing basis. The competitive part would only be one aspect of that, but you want your, your understanding and your analysis and your response to your competition to be part of that ongoing marketing, market knowledge that also looks at your products, at your customers, and just keeps you in tune with your market on an ongoing basis, not just the once every three years, let's go do a competitive analysis. Once every five years, let's go do a member survey sort of thing. That's just not going to get you where you need to go in, in, in today's market for lifelong learning. Competition is a perennial concern for any business, and learning businesses need to take the time and energy to evaluate and then reevaluate periodically the competitive landscape in which they operate so that they can survive and thrive. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 353, you'll find show notes, a full transcript, and resources related to this episode. You'll also find options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you haven't yet, please do subscribe as subscription numbers give us some visibility into the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you enjoy the show. Jeff and I personally appreciate reviews and ratings, and they help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And please spread the word about leading learning. You can do that in a one-on-one -on -one note or conversation with a colleague, or you can do it through social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 353, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Podcast.